I said the social media founders and their platforms would be more more powerful than the president of the United States. I, I began saying that in uh, 2007, and I was saying we don't understand the power of social media. And, and similarly, folks had intrigue, but maybe glazed eyes. But when you're right about something, and, and luckily in the investing world, we've been right a few times over, you can point back, at least if there's an archive of video footage, and say, no, 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 I've been warning you about this for a long time. Workforce transformation, a future of work where individuals are owners of their own career. Companies buying work outcomes, not employees, on the open market. Welcome to State of Independence, the podcast about how independent work has completely transformed the U.S. economy and how you can take advantage of it. I'm your host, Asya Haq, Vice President of Talent Marketing at MBO Partners. Today, we will talk with Soraya Darabi, founder and general partner of TMV, a venture firm that invests in purposeful startups reimagining the future. In addition to companies in healthcare, sustainability, transportation, and logistics, TMV invests in companies thinking about the future of work. We will talk with Soraya about her life as an investor in this space, but also about her journey as a female founder a number of times over, and what she sees as the trends worth watching in independent work and beyond. Saraya, I am so pleased to welcome you to the MBO State of Independence podcast. I followed your interesting content and your unique perspectives on the future of work and excited to welcome you to share your insights and your career story with our audience. It's a pleasure to be here and looking forward to the conversation. I love to start these conversations given that we're at the 10th year of MBO measuring independent work in America with a more personal question to you that becomes a backstory and a way for our audience to understand you. Mm-hmm. Where were you 10 years ago today? And how does that link to what you do today at TMV? 10 years ago, so that would have been 2011. I was just coming off the heels of the acquisition of the first startup I co-founded. It was called Food Spotting. We sold the business to Open Table, And then later Priceline bought Open Table and with it Food Spotting. I was dreaming up my next startup. I was just starting off as an angel investor. I wrote my first angel check 10 years ago and thinking a little bit about how I wish that the playing field were a bit more level for non-obvious founders like myself, because as an angel investor, I was investing in companies founded by all walks of life, men, women, people of color, everything you can imagine. Yet I noticed that the trajectory was just a little bit more of an upward hockey stick to the right for my male friends and shouldn't be that way, but it was. And I remember thinking that I I had hoped that there would be a playbook for non-obvious founders. And so funny enough, a decade later, my business partners and I, we have five partners among us, seven exits. We've raised two funds, three SPVs together. We've been in business for five years. And that's basically what we do for a living is, is try to make the playing field a little bit more level. That is so incredible. Well, I know a little bit about what it is that you do, but I think for our audience to understand a little bit more about TMV would be a wonderful place to start before we dive into the sort of the naughtier parts of the future of work topic. So tell us a little bit more about the firm and some of your big investments. 
Uh, with pleasure. TMV.VC is our website. We are a fund that invests in purpose-driven startups reimagining the future. Another way to look at it is um, we invest solely in digital businesses converging with 200 plus year old industries for the first time. So um, for us, you know, some of the more well-known investments might be anything from a city block health, which became a unicorn last month. And city block health is bringing premium healthcare probably the oldest industry. And uh, we're, we're specifically focused on um, low-income neighborhoods from Crown Heights to Washington, D.C. City Block makes great healthcare accessible for all. And our fund in other categories will invest in tech-enabled sustainable solutions. So we are proud investors in Ridwell, which is a privatized recycling business based out of Seattle, Washington, growing leaps and bounds. We are also investors in a vertical dedicated to the future of work which is relevant for today's conversation. So we've been way before COVID, long on remote work, corporate reskilling and DEI. Uh, so technologies rethinking how do we work and, and where do we work? And last but not least, mobility, transportation, supply chain. Two of my partners have demonstrable backgrounds in those arenas. And so we invest very carefully in businesses, you know, rethinking last mile transportation, smart cities, rethinking how do we ship X to Y and with what means. So we've been investing together, as I mentioned, for five years. We're on our second fund, five companies in. We'll, we'll make a total of 25 investments out of this vehicle. And I work with some of the smartest people I know. So it's really a pleasure because every day is a new learning opportunity. And every day I am getting further and farther with people I really enjoy being in, in the boat with. It's amazing. Some of what you're saying, and it's a little bit of an aside, but I think it's relevant to our community, kind of echoes that high of anyone who becomes an entrepreneur, you know, and who sees something, sees the possible, and then pursues it. And we see that with our independent professionals within MBO's broader community every day, that taking a leap, having the faith that you see something somebody else doesn't see within your industry and pursuing it through all the ups and downs. I want to shift gears a little bit and kind of tease out something that I heard as sort of social media chatter as I was part of sort of that female founder dialogue online. And I've been a female founder twice over myself. So I very, very much relate to the journey that you're on and, and I'm a great supporter. So you made a statement as a young, I think it was as an analyst, and you can correct me if I'm wrong as to when you put the statement out there, where you talked about a world in which platforms were going to be more powerful than POTUS. Hmm. And it turned out that that actually turned out to be more true than any of us realized, given some of the events that have happened just since 2021 dawned. Talk a little bit about what gave you that insight that was fairly far back in your career and where you see the role of platforms today. So when I stated that, um, I said that social media founders and their platforms would be more more powerful than the president of the United States. I, I began saying that in uh, 2007. So my first job out of college was at Condé Nast on the digital side, helping some stakeholders at Condé understand the acquisition of Reddit and then communicating that acquisition externally. I went on to the New York Times to be the first manager of social media and digital partnerships. At the New York Times, we were among the first brands in the world to partner with Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and Foursquare and Vimeo and Tumblr and a whole bunch of social media companies you no longer hear much of. 
And, you know, I was 26 years old, actually 23 when they hired me, 26 when I left. And so I started speaking on a global stage. I've now been fortunate enough to speak in over 20 countries about transpiring the future of, you name it, media, work, all the topics in which we invest. But at that time, I was specifically a pundit on media. I was commenting on this for ABC News, among other other networks. And I just started to notice that there was a discrepancy with how fast my friends who worked in the social media sector were picking up on their power, or at least understanding of that power from the more traditional industries where I worked. And so I was sort of saying this as a warning in some ways. It was on the Fast Company stage at their most creative people in business event. And I think the video of me saying this was during a, a session. It was me and, and, and an amazing human being, Ray Kurzweil, who, who runs AI for Google. So sort of intimidating. I was a kid and he was talking about how we don't really understand AI and people were not paying attention because 10 years ago, still, it sounded like robots and, and Tom Cruise movies back then. And I was saying, we don't understand the power of social media. And, and similarly, folks had intrigue, but maybe glazed eyes. But when you're right about something, and, and luckily in the investing world, we've been right a few times over, you can point back at least if there's an archive of video footage and saying, no, 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 I've been warning you about this for a long, long time. Um, so I think the reason that I had that innate understanding is because I had sat on both sides of the fence, if you will. And there weren't a lot of people, at least then, who had that perspective. Now there are more. It's certainly prescient, and I think it is sort of timely that we're having this conversation given what's just happened with Reddit and GameStop and sort of this turning out to be true and disruptive, maybe even in ways that are different than um, the political arena. It's fascinating on that front. I also think that I continue to admire the New York Times for what they do in the digital media space. I was recently chatting online about their recent primal scream destination. And I don't know if you've seen it, but it's great. An interactive moment that talks about the impact of COVID on women in the workforce. And it's something that we talk about inside MBO because many times we learn that as women are disrupted in the traditional work arena or find challenges, many of them turn to independent work as a way to continue to be relevant while struggling with career transition. So, so many neat themes and so many great themes there in, in your own personal story. Indeed, I followed the GameStop to the moon, Reddit stonk versus, you know, the suits war with a lot of pleasure and glee because I just thought it was sort of funny. And I think I think there was a lot of hypocrisy from the suits on Wall Street who are saying, hey, no, you can't disrupt our game from, you know, the very ones who have been gaming it all along. So um, power to the people. And, you know, in terms of the New York Times and admiration, it's still my favorite brand in the world. I pay for the New York Times as a weekender subscriber, get it in print Friday, Saturday, Sunday, digital subscriber, very long on New York Times stock. And uh, when you talk about data visualizations, you know, now you're referring to uh, a side of the organization that's really dear to me because my friend George was just named the new head of product design. And so what they're doing is really remarkable. There's a lot of noise out there in the news arena you know, and uh, a lot of misinformation. And what I can say, having been on the inside of that particular institution, is that those journalists work tirelessly and everyone's heart is in the right place. And it is the most talented and intelligent group of individuals that I've ever had the pleasure to be amongst. And so we need more of that. We need more of this kind of sort of in-your-face visual presentation of news 
because otherwise a lot of stories are being lost. And also because we're, we're in this fragmented media environment where you know, we're oversaturated with news information from multiple platforms. It's Clubhouse now, it's Twitter last week and TikTok next week and who knows what's coming around the bend. You know, we have what I've long called multiple identity disorder, which is a different identity on every different social media platform. And so sometimes it's just like having chicken soup for the soul to go back to a media organization that you can count on for reputable work and that has a consistent voice and tone. Because quite honestly, I don't want to be constantly fact-checking my sources on social. I'd, li I'd like to just feel like I have trust in an institution that's feeding me news. And if that news comes in a pretty package, all the better. So on the topic of media, since we're having such an interesting discussion there, I wasn't intending to pursue this, but now I really want to after hearing you speak. Miles, who's the CEO of MBO and I, we've had this sort of online conversation. We've had a great conversation on the podcast as well about his views of the future, and he's definitely a futurist. But one of his theories is that every company will become a media company. Yep. And um, I've also followed what I think is a really interesting development from Andreessen Horowitz, you know, a VC firm. The reason I ask is because obviously you would have a unique lens on this sort of inventing itself as a little bit of a media company and creating an arm that has to do with content. Talk to me a little bit about this idea. Do you believe every company will need to or will become a media company? And is that a good or bad thing for us if, if that happens? Not only do I believe that, but that was part of my investment thesis of 10 years ago. I would only invest in brands that invested in content. My second angel check was in Casper. And a lot of the work that I did with two of the founders in particular was around their content publication dedicated to sleep when they first launched it. I was also uh, the first investor in Contently, which was a startup that was specifically designed to help brands build out their content arm. So that investment was in 2011, exactly 10 years ago today. I've long shared your view that all brands will become media arms in some component. The Andreessen play, I think, is them wanting to become more like a Goldman Sachs. You know, they've done a lot of really interesting, innovative things to rethink venture, in part because they are so large. And so they have to be shelling out checks pretty much left, right, and center. And those, those checks need to be bigger and bigger and bigger. And so it makes sense for them to kind of build an in-house army of folks who will, in a very clever way as well, help to propagate their own investments. And they had this in a gentleman named Benedict who wrote what I think of as being the preeminent newsletter on technology out there, Benedict Evans. And he's since gone solo. I think when he left, it led to a void in the content arm of Andreessen. And so this is part of a longer strategy they've always held. You know, they've, they've long hired many, many partners um, to tackle business development and marketing and PR for the startups in which they invest because they believe in capital plus counsel, as do many of we. Um, but now that that promise has become somewhat ubiquitous, it's hard to find a VC firm who doesn't offer that. This is yet another way to differentiate themselves. Uh, for you know young companies, because I tend to invest at the earliest infancy, for young companies, I say, make it part of your strategy, but make it authentic. I'd rather read one terrific white paper you put out a year that you spend a lot of time you know, surveying other companies for and, and having proprietary information than watching you as a founder on Twitter all day to build your own personal brand. And so we all have to have a content strategy that's unique to us, but also it's important to teach founders in particular, what is the ROI of your time? Every second of every day, I know how I'm spending my time and I, I, I wish that for them as well.
That's extremely wise. You know, we're getting ready to work with a group of premier consultants that we work with inside a membership program called MBO Advantage, which is sort of a new, I'd call it like a little internal startup inside the MBO ecosystem. And it's it's one of our first attempts to connect experienced independent practice owners to each other. So like a provider to provider interaction within a broader platform world. And one of the things that bubbled up out of that is a group of people that stepped forward and said, we want to be thought leaders. You know, we want to be like the McKinsey quarterly. And there's no reason that we couldn't be because we actually have the expertise. We have the thought leadership. We're owners of our own practices. We simply haven't had a way to kind of brand and have a destination for that that's beyond ourselves, right? And so they love being a part of a program where they're independent operators and they're recognized as such, but the power of MBO is more as a as an enabler or connector. And, and it's beautiful. It's like five stories of a theme which they came up with, resilience, which is a key theme given the world that we're in, and their individual takes. And their advice to their corporate customers. And, mm-hmm. and what I love about it is, is this authenticity of their content. Like I had no idea what would come out of this interaction as somebody who was helping to really just support it behind the scenes and, and get out of the way, get out of the way of the design, get out of the way of the content get out of the format and and listen to what would bubble up. And it's been an amazing journey. And I'm really proud to have been a part of it. It's a small mini moment that kind of hits at some of the themes you're talking about. So as we're talking about independent consultants, it kind of brings us to the heart of why I had invited you. As somebody who has built a brand around the future of work, you know, I know you partner with Cisco and you have a you sort of thematic conversation around future of work. You certainly have an investment thesis around the topic within TMV. Talk about within the set of big problems that need big solutions, where do you think future of work fits? And then what is the big problem, right? Because it's a big topic. Everyone's in on it. What does it even mean? What does it mean to you? I'll tell you what future of work means to us at TMV and where we're excited to invest. My entire career, I've been inventing new titles for myself. I've never actually had a job description that was accurate to the work that I've done. And I think this is really indicative of a modern millennial and Gen Z workforce. There's a duality to it. There's a lot of paradox in the work that we do. And you can call it opaqueness or you can call it the messy middle, but we're still trying to find our way in this new digital arena of defining ourselves and the prowess of our work. And so I'm really fascinated in anything that deserves and requires a definition because that means that we can help shape that industry. So what do I mean? 10, 15 years ago, I was working for the first time with people who called themselves digital technologists. And it just meant that they could blog and code. Or then you'd meet people who called themselves creative technologists. And that meant they understood how to design and code. Flash forward to the future. And, you know, there are new job titles now every single day, whether it's chief mobile mobile evangelists or, you know, head of AI. And these new verticals that are being defined actually are opening up the floodgates for innovation to partner with corporate America and to say, okay, we actually recognize that you've given us a beacon and you're open to conversations around how we as startup founders developing a new AI technology can partner with you. Maybe it's a no-code startup whereby you put an Excel document full of data into an API that has been designed by a group of Stanford design whizzes. And then as opposed to requiring code as an output, it gives you um, an infographic visualizing the data that you've just put into the system. That's future of work. And that is very much of the now. 
because if I had just mentioned that exact idea to you five years ago, it would have sounded like hocus pocus. Thanks to modern technology, it's absolutely possible. And thanks to a modern corporate understanding of what AI means, it's actually desirable. So at TMV, we try to collectively understand what is of the now, what technologies exist that are burgeoning, that could require a little bit of our capital and counsel, and who are the partners at larger institutions that will anoint these young brands and believe in them before most so they can ride the wave together. And when you understand, as I always have, I've always had one foot in the innovation world, one foot in the corporate world. When you understand how to marry those two worlds, you actually can provide an unfair advantage for both parties. So when we look at the future of work specifically, we are excited very much so about corporate reskilling. And I've said provocative things, like I think all organizations should pay for all employees to learn how to code. People might push back on that. There are a lot of people who don't want to, but what I'm really saying is that we're operating in a new language and there's a literacy that some people have an organization and it sounds like French to others, right? Or that's Greek to me. And what I'm trying to avoid is that divide because that divide becomes a chasm. Similarly, there are other cultural divides. People in an organization who are embracing the idea of progress, inclusivity, DEI, BLM, a genderless world. And there are people for whom that sounds scary and like something they don't have time to be bothered with. And so at TMV, we invest in companies like the wonderful Work Bravely, which is a chatbot that helps employees inside of a company text anonymously with HR professionals who are 1099, by the way, so they're working for themselves, like in the MBO world, outside of the organization so that they can get feedback on not only how to be better at their job, but how to create that more inclusive workplace. Then the right data is sourced anonymously to the powers that be, the C-suite executives or HR, who can synthesize that information, but not hold any one person responsible. So that's what we do at TMV. We find, what's that new technology? Oh, it's a chatbot. What's the play here? Well, people are more likely to be working for themselves than not in a post-2025 world. That's the 1099 side of the marketplace that I just described. Talk to me about DEI and how corporations are finally embracing it. Now, Work Gravely comes along and they have a solution that's a trinity of all three we're likely to invest. I want to touch on something about the now, because you've mentioned that. And I think technology and enabling technologies plays a part. And that's a piece of data that we follow, this census-style data, which is the historic rise in creation of new EINs within the U.S. during COVID. So quarter-on-quarter quarter rise, yeah. people launching a solo business. I think a signal coming from the U.S. Small Business Administration, coming from people that watch the sector, Steve King, who's incredible and who runs our state of independence research, has closely followed this data for us. What is your thesis on what that means? And do you as a team have a thesis on what the gap is there for supporting America's solo and micro entrepreneurs? Mm, I love this question. This question gives me chills. So first of all, it is a, a record time to be starting a business of any sort and an exciting time at that because there's never been more literature or support available online should you wish to be a solo venturist and to want to take that leap. And also because we are living in a time of uncertainty, there's actually a de-risking of it as well where that thing, that hobby, that passion that you might've put to the side while you focused on the day-to-day -day sort of slog is actually no longer so terrifying to go out and pursue because the whole world is a little wacky right now. And so hats off to the people taking a risk in this environmental limbo 
because I personally feel like it is the right moment. There's no blemish on your resume during a pandemic, as I like to say. I also think that, you know, people are taking the advice of, of scholars in this space. Uh, our advisor and LP, Adam Grant, writes in his book, Originals, that it's safer to start a business while you're sort of hedging a bet, while you're already, you know, safe and sound in another situation. And so a lot of what I'm noticing in terms of the trends of these LLCs are they are not sole practitioners necessarily. They are people taking one step into the world of entrepreneurism while remaining at their sort of steady nine to five, quote unquote, because the nine to five is no longer a post FDR nine to five. Further trends that excite me, uh, 1400 businesses a day are started by black women in America. Now a trend that doesn't excite me and it's rather sobering is that inversely black women are the least likely minority group to receive venture financing because of the intersectionality of it all. And so, you know, at TMV, one thing that we are very proud of is that 77% of our founders are women and or people of color. So we have long taken a big bet on underdogs. We think it's simply good for business. It's not a quota for us. It's not something to just, you know, kind of pat ourselves on the back about. It's actually going to make us money by investing in diverse founders. And the data is supporting the fact that finally, 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 the tides are turning and more folks are agreeing with us. We recently welcomed in Bank of America as a substantial new LP in our fund. And that's because they recognized our willingness to bet on non-traditional founders. So there are a lot of interesting new trends at play in the future of work, propelling sole practitioners forward and things that I advocate for. Um, I'm deeply passionate about investing in people who have portfolio careers, not people who are all over the place, but rather technologies that permit portfolio careers to happen. I'm sitting here talking to you on a podcast, talking about things on podcasts are very comfortable for me. I have a, a podcast that I host. It's called Business School, powered by Synchrony, and it's been a very enjoyable part of my life for the last two years. It is not my day job. My day job is TMV, and that's a portfolio career. So anything that enables the 1099 economy, sole practitioners, or people who wish to venture out and work for themselves from a technological standpoint to be able to do so more fluidly as an investor with my VC hat on, I find that incredibly compelling and something that I'd like to look into because I believe that's just going to be the future of work full stop. I could not agree with you more. And the portfolio career concept is one that we've followed very closely at MB over the years. And our thesis like yours has been to try to understand the unmet needs and what will turn into something that's a product opportunity. And I'll tell you sort of my personal thesis here. Uh, so there was a shift and it, it didn't make it into our main report, but it's one that we really teased out and tried to understand, which is during COVID, a shift from product to services um, and services to products. So people were hopping and experimenting, really trying to help their businesses succeed in a greater way. But the shift from services to product for a high-end independent professional, such as the the kind that MBO serves, you know, average project sizes north of $50,000, a lifetime revenue stream that could look like a very successful small business or firm, not just a, an individual contractor. For this individual, finding a way to take their knowledge and be able to replicate it in the form of a product, we've seen that happen within the learning space or, you know, the Courseras, the Teachables, you know, the, the, the platforms that enable you to build a residual income off of um, the most powerful part of what you do and also lead gen, 
you know, to continued services. I think that's one that's really interesting. Exactly how it plays out, when will it tip and scale? When will become the first way that you engage with a professional for work? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe it's because something hasn't happened yet that needs to happen, but I'm curious, you know, do you see any others? And what do you think about that one? So I think when one company becomes so big and powerful that just like Kleenex became synonymous with tissue, that that brand becomes the ultimate noun for a category of something, then it's become mainstream. And so what you're describing is what I consider to be the master classing of different vertical expertise. At TMV, we invested in a company called tinyhood.com, which is the masterclass for new parents. You can sign up for a subscription or pay on a bundled basis or a per class basis to learn from trained experts. And in this case, the experts are doulas, doctors, nurse practitioners, lactation coaches, sleep coaches on how to raise a new human. I am the mother to a six month old baby girl, and I have been an investor in this company for three and a half years, but I became an obsessive user of the product when I had a supreme need for it and it all clicked. And that's when I said, oh my gosh, Becky and Susan, the founders, you've really built something amazing here. And then I'm now noticing it because my eyes are wide open in other verticals that there's a masterclass happening in pretty much every subject matter domain you can think of. So that's one element that I find very exciting. How do people capitalize on this as experts and make meaningful income? Well, the next step is to create a Shopify of sorts so that the people who have the expertise can build their own platforms, right? So we need to, this is another way you can, you can turn Shopify into a verb. We want a Shopifying of the master classing experience. So it's, you know, a little, a little much for the mouth, but I want to say to my mother who taught public health at Columbia and the university of Minnesota and state college, Pennsylvania, Penn state for, for her entire career, she knows more about immigration healthcare than most. How do I give her? And I don't mean, you know, all the little platforms designed to teach university courses, but how do I give her all of the tools that she needs garage band style so that if she wanted to teach that course to the best of her ability and not have to partner with anyone else, she could, and using the power of social media and the internet, find people who are excited to learn from her as a PhD with, you know, 30 plus years of teaching experience in the domain that is about to happen, whether it happens through outlier or any of these new startups coming around the bend too soon to say, but most certainly it's a trend to look out for. I know that there's going to be a team sitting in MBO sort of with their mouths open saying, oh, how did she know that we were working on that? We have been talking about this topic just endlessly, like the Shopify analogy and what it means for creating that uh, professional storefront that allows you to not just showcase your knowledge, but also uh, monetize your services and and to be sort of agnostic to which form of revenue is going to come in the door. So agree, agree, and 100% agree. I think large organizations are going to be spinning out new unicorns that we've previously thought of as being disruptors. So what do I mean by that? In the past, it was always like, if you want to get something done, do it yourself. And so people would leave large corporate America and they'd go and start the startup and then maybe come back to partner with the organization of which they left. Now what we're seeing is more of these large corporates or mid-sized corporations are partnering with incubators, accelerators, uh, developing very keen R&D departments in-house and bringing their own concepts to life. And some of these ideas are really gaining traction. I find that exciting. I think that, you know, anytime you have to redefine something that has long been considered the status quo is a good moment to kind of get in on it. 
Absolutely. And I want to hit on a piece of this puzzle that we haven't yet touched on, but I think it's one of the sort of the missing links to a holistic solution. And it's the role of community Mm -hmm. in work and and what community even means and, and how that becomes a part of the bundle of what it is that you provide or sell. How does that look in a world in which we may be fundamentally remote or nomadic, you know, choosing to work and live where we want? But needing that access to whether it's a personal or professional network or a buyer-seller community, aka Shopify, right? So there's many different ways to even think about the word. What are your thoughts there? Well, I think community as a differentiator is something that excites me as a VC and, and something that you'll see me practice what I preach on. I really believe there's never been a better time to form community and to hold yourself accountable to community because we are getting some hours back in our day by being forced to be at home so much. And to some, those hours back are, you know, they're one hour to and from commute when they previously might've been listening to a podcast on the drive to work. But now if those are two hours of your day, hypothetically that you've reclaimed for yourself, you can be mindful. How am I spending those minutes? And with the modern advent of all of these new video conferencing tools, educating us and making the whole world honestly comfortable with the idea of the serendipity that can come from being virtual, virtually conferenced in with one another, we're going to see some formality and some boundaries built around this very vessel where you and I are speaking now. So in practice, I built in, over the last couple of years virtually entirely with my business partner, Marina, and our good friends, Alexia, Heather, and Virginie, a group called Transact Global. And we started as just a, a weekly Google Meet for women emerging fund managers to talk it out and to talk about how the experience for us, both as investors and raising capital and finding great deals to source and land, felt a little bit different than it would feel for somebody who was not in our shoes. And what began first as just an organic, authentic community of like-minded individuals blossomed into a learning experience where we started to share knowledge and then we realized how much further and farther we could go if we really were intentional about that shared knowledge. So we began inviting guest speakers, institutional LPs, best-in-class lawyers, accountants, individuals who are in charge of putting women on boards into the mix. And now when we're finally launching three years later, uh, and again, this has been done 100% virtually in 2021, we are operating in 12 countries in Nigeria, Luxembourg, the UK, France, China, Venezuela, Mexico, Canada, the US, among others. We are now congregating over 130 women a day on a WhatsApp group. We've created split spin-off groups, one dedicated for fundraising, one dedicated for picking, picking public stocks together, one for SPACs, one for board representation. And all of this has been done without a dime of budget. Actually, to correct, it's been put on my Amex credit card, but someone will pay me back eventually. And I'm paying for basically pro subscriptions to things like Google and buying a domain. But it's really remarkable what can be accomplished virtually if you really believe in that community. And I think the power of social media is now fundamentally being boiled down into micro communities. And micro communities can be large, going back to our conversation about Reddit and GameStop. You know, that's a one million member large group of people who said, hey, Together, we're a very powerful union and probably the world's largest hedge fund. Let's go. We're going to see that same democracy in action across every community you can think of, even communities you wouldn't even imagine could possibly exist. So it's the right time is what I'm trying to say to find your tribe and to build something with them. But don't do it because it's simply good for you as a money making system. 
Do it because you're keen to learn from others and to grow together. I always like to end these conversations when I speak with experts like you. I ask this question of Arun. I've asked this question of others. Getting ready to bring that next generation into the workforce, getting ready to really plan for a completely different future from our past. You've talked about your theory about how you design. You've hit on a lot of this. But as you think about your your newborn child, as you were to speak to your newborn child, what is it that they need to do to be successful in the future of work? How did they set themselves up? What do they what do they build as an infrastructure? I think about this sometimes. I, I think about all the perceived advantages my daughter has that I didn't have growing up. And and maybe what I perceive to be her advantages are actually disadvantages. You know, I, I was the daughter of an immigrant and a mother who very much believed in sort of a, a hands-off, not laissez-faire, but individualistic parenting style. And so our home was filled with people and conversation, a potpourri of potlucks and politics. And that was my education more than anything, you know, learning to converse with interesting and disparate human beings. And potentially I can bring that to my daughter, right? But in a, in a post-pandemic world, maybe not. And then I think about some of the things that I perceived as disadvantages. You know, nobody really taught me about business and now I'm a business person. And so all of that was self-taught. Or, you know, with that more hands-off parenting style approach, I didn't have a helicopter parent, you know, making sure that I was tutored up and, you know, had perfect scores on everything. There was uh, a belief that there would be as many learnings from the mistakes as the successes, which now have been memorialized in amazing works like Angela Duckworth's Grit or Carol Dweck's Mindset. It's almost like now everybody has that playbook. And so everybody's going to be using that playbook on their kids. And so we're going to have an entire sort of playground of parents saying, it's okay, honey, it's not that you're advanced, it's that you tried your best because they'll be trying in this sort of manufactured way to get their kids to learn about perseverance. And actually at the end of the day, I think a lot of that is just innate. I think what I think of as my chip on my shoulder is probably just a part of my DNA. So I wish for my daughter, for her to live a colorful life, curious life. I will do my best to make it colorful And I will do my best to foster her curiosity and to engage in it. And when I hear she's interested in something, to lean into it, even if it's unfamiliar to me. And that is honestly my belief as to how we create successful human beings, for people to feel heard and appreciated. But everything else, the sort of statistics and and the accolades don't really mean much to me because I know enough about AI to be dangerous. And so at the end of the day, my goal for my kid is just to make her happy. I see the underlying, you know, it's a, it's a sad underlying comment in terms of AI. We know, we know, you know, we know a difficult future is coming and we know that we're already in a world of tremendous income inequality. Mm-hmm. And we know that there's no great answer to the question of what do you do when so much of work is automated that there isn't actually enough of it to go around in a traditional sense and the social safety nets might not have caught up with how you need to design a a social fabric and a social future. And this is a topic I care a lot about. It's one that we've talked about on the podcast. And I think my two cents here, you know, again, having a 16-year-old, I'm a little closer to the sort of the reality moment of sending her out into the world. And she's so excited about, you know, where is she going to go to college? And it's giving her access to the data that is 
actually predictive about mm -hmm. where careers are going versus the sort of pedestrian advice about how hard you need to work and what you need to do to be successful, which can sometimes create very frustrated and very disappointed young adults because they feel like they should have been rewarded, you know, for all that effort, like you said, all that tutoring and all the right classes and all the right sports. And, and then they wake up one day and the idea of what they were getting ready to do is somehow underfunded or cut or becomes obsolete. You design your future with the assumption that there's a reward mm -hmm. and the reward is no longer there at the moment that you reach maturation. So to me, the only answer is, is in the data because the data can very quickly predict which career path is going to be most likely to match your learning agility, your entrepreneurial ability? Well, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I joke with my sister. She took the oboe, which is, I think, one of the least likely instruments someone is um, suggested to sign up for as, as a high school student. She studied Farsi and she fenced. And does, does my sister use those skill sets in her day-to-day -day life? No, not so much. But is she a more colorful and interesting human being because she knows about these sort of obscure hobbies. I don't know, was it worth the experience alone? Sometimes the journey is the destination. And so if we lean into data, what will make you the most money? We're going to form robots. But remember, I'm, I'm the kid of a liberal arts professor. And so at the end of the day, what I believe in is this. Education is paramount, conversation is essential, and curiosity is king. And, you know, maybe our next conversation could be about how technology can disrupt college counseling, because I think it can. But in the interest of being economic, I will say that I think your daughter will be okay no matter what she thinks. I do agree. Well, very wise and very cogent words with which to end our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. That was Soraya Darabi, founder and general partner of the venture firm TMV. For more insights on the future of work and how to make the most of the independent economy, visit mbopartners.com or find another episode of State of Independence wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening.